Hey everybody, welcome. Hello, this is Stuff Said. It's a show of freeform conversational interviews with people in and around the world of comics and beyond. I am your host, Greg Schiegel, and I thank you for taking the time to download, pot up, think in, or however you got the show. I thank you for listening, basically. This is uh, the point of that opening, opening bit, and saying the name of the show and saying my name. This is the first episode, and while I thought I'd explain what the show is and why I'm doing it and all that, I'm going to save that, because there's time for that later. It's, I'd rather just get to the, the, the meat and potatoes of the show, which is me talking to my guest. Uh, you're wondering maybe, who are you? Who's Greg Schiegel? Shortest way of explaining it, I'm a cartoonist. I've drawn some comics. I've drawn some licensed publishing. I've written some comics here and there. I draw a lot of SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, but this is all stuff. If you search, if you do a Google search, you can learn a lot about this. And that's not what this show's about. It's not about me reading off my resume. Um, and, and in the course of these interviews, you'll, you'll hear me mention things that I did. So you'll, you'll pick it up that way. But I am a working professional in the world of comics. And that's the short version. So my guest... Uh, my guest is Chris Giruso. I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Giruso. Hopefully you are, but if you're not, you're about to learn about him. He's probably best known for the mini Marvels, comic strips and books he did for Marvel Comics uh, a while back. Not that long ago. Make it sound like it was 10 years ago. Within the past five years, if my math is right. But now he does his own book for Image Comics called G-Men, which I encourage everybody to check out. But yeah, I've known Chris for years. Uh, he's one of the people I've known longest in the business of comics. And he's a guy that when I knew I was doing this show and what I was going to be doing with it, he was essentially going to be my first guest, whether he wanted to or not. So I'm going to stop talking now. Well, I'm going to stop talking in the intro, and then the interview conversation will start, and you'll hear me talking again. And then that'll end, or at least part one will end, and then you'll hear me talk again. Oh, yeah, did I forget? Yeah, this is a two-parter. Chris and I talked for about two and a half hours when we recorded this, and I tightened it up to an hour and a half that's being split into these two episodes. So, you know what? Enough out of me. Let's get the show started. Here he is, my conversation with Chris Giruso. We've known each other for a long time now. Yes, since ninety. Yeah, you have you have a better, I think, recollection of March, how we met. Well, March of ninety eight was when I started at Marvel on staff. Right, I started in like November ninety seven. So that was the first time I met you. Normally, I'm good at remembering how and when I met people, but I I do not have a specific memory of how we met each other. Well, I have like a couple of early interactions. Are any of these particularly entertaining? Coming from the way I tell it, probably not. But yeah, I had been an intern the summer of 97, right. summer after you were there. Right. So as an intern, I think it was like my last week of the internship, uh, and I was interning for Kelly Corvasi, and he said he was hiring Greg to draw an issue of What If? And he was like, yeah, he was an intern last year, and now he's now he's drawing our, our, this book for us. And I was just, I remember right away, I was just like intimidated, like, holy cow, this guy was an intern, and he's already drawn, wow. I had a very similar thing with Paul Tutrone. Where thing I'd learned that he was an intern the summer before I was, and he was only a year older than me. Well, I'm a year older than you. Yeah. So it's even worse. No, it's not worse. It was, you had a, you had it a was humiliating. Path. You had a different collegiate path. Which... Humiliating. <laughs> to be an old man. <laughs> well, that's true. An intern. Sure. No, so, my internship was pretty cool. I actually got published a few times. Those what if comics. But then, and so then I, you know, I briefly heard about you on my way out, thinking like, well, I'm probably never going to get a job here. After this summer. But so the positivity knows? was like out of the gate. <laughs> no, no. It's just like, you know, because when I was an intern, getting published was a cool thing. Sure. And and some of the other interns were like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. You got you got published. You got sure. the most out of this internship than anybody. But I think among the people in editorial, I kind of ruffled – like I'd already rubbed people the wrong way. I don't know if I ever even told you about this, some of this stuff before. I, I don't know. I would later give Mark Powers crap for this. But uh, Powers told his intern – 
I don't care if Doug comes in here or the other guys, but don't let Chris into this office anymore. <laughs> now, at the time he had said that, I had been in that office a total of one time. And in that office, you – what did you do? Probably nothing. Oh, okay. You weren't, like, throwing feces around. No, I have a – Like a wild ape. No. No, <laughs> I, I, no, I was uh, totally, like, you know, quiet. I, I felt like I just demonstrated that I knew my place. Right. And I was just kind of – don't speak unless spoken to, that sort of a thing. But I think for some reason everybody was in there, so I went in there. It was like – it didn't seem like an out-of-place thing for me to, like, walk in there at that moment. Right. Or, you know, or I was maybe the group of interns was doing something. I don't know. This is this is one of my favorite little bits of Chris Russo trivia is that you were a math major in college. Right. For the first two, three years? Yeah, it's kind of convoluted, but – Basically, you know, the, the short version is, yeah. yes, I was a math major for about three years, four years. With the intention of being a math teacher? With the intention of, uh, well, this was me. Like, yeah. oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, you have plenty of time. You have plenty of time to figure out what you want to do. Hey, math. You know, there's a lot of different things you could do with math. That's a really strong major. And I'd always just go, oh, well, Okay, and so I would just keep going forward thinking, like, I'd figure it out down the road. For a brief period of time, I'd entertain the idea of teaching, but... Like, what would be the logical step? Okay, math major was in the... It's just Master's of Business Administration. Would that be, like, the next, like, just keep going to school? I don't know. We're playing, like, we're playing what if right now. Like, what if Chris never got that job on the school paper? Okay, well, then... uh, (laughs) Then I'm right back. I'm the same guy that I was, like, wondering, like, what am I going to do? So you would, you would ended up doing something, worth working at an office? I don't know. Doing something? I don't think I could have cut it. <laughs> like, cause, because, like, I started off as a math major because it was very easy for me in high school. I always got straight A's. It came natural. I didn't, you know, a little bit of stuff. I'm not going to say I didn't do it in my sleep, but it, it was very easy for me comparatively. What did you get on your math SATs? I don't know. It was above. It was above seven hundred. It's like seven forty, maybe. Like I didn't get eight hundred. <laughs> it's still amazing. I would say eight hundred's amazing. Yeah. I didn't get eight hundred. Seven forty's pretty good. I might not have gotten seven forty. I just. I'm pretty sure there was a seven. I might have got seventy two. I was on a track. Let me get back to this. Okay. Yeah. Math started to get extremely. I hit the wall with Calc three. Okay. I, I hung in there for a few more classes, like linear algebra class, but. And there was, uh, I don't know, impossible imaginary numbers, impossible, <laughs> impossible math. But, yeah, I hit the wall and I thought, well, if this is how hard this is to do this, why do I want a job where I use this stuff that's so hard for me to do? So, uh, I did, you know, I was, I was confident that this was not going to work out and I didn't know what I was going to do. That, and then that actually made me say, well, maybe teaching. Because I think teaching is a lot of people, and again, this is a, seemed appealing to me at the time because you can grasp it right because at this point in your career your whole life you have seen teaching and you've been on the other side of it but you've seen teachers do their job and you feel like okay i know what teaching is and your mom was a teacher my mom was a teacher my dad was also a teacher slash guidance counselor right so you had that i don't know that that like makes me a born no it's not that it makes you a born teacher but even as a kid you knew that teachers had to grade papers when they, they had their own version of homework they had to do lesson plans right, that, right. like as a kid I didn't know what any of that was you show up the teacher tells you stuff you go home you don't really realize oh wait they have to read all these papers or whatever it is teachers do you at least had that so your concept of what a teacher was my mom the math teacher was constantly reading no you know what I papers. mean <laughs> can we cover it with you started doing a strip for the college paper and got the bug and switched your why major? Why you ask me why I started doing that strip? Hey, Chris, why'd you because start Because doing- I love it. <laughs> well, the early, the, uh, you know, okay, I grew up a comics fan, reading comic strips in newspapers. That's on your reading, website. Reading comic books. You can get that from your website. ChrisGComics.com. Yeah. And as a, as a little kid, actually in fourth grade, one of the kids in my class started a comic strip. He's like, I'm, he actually created a cast of characters, and he worked on his own comic strip. And it was like the sort of thing that got infectious, because like every, suddenly everybody wanted to get involved, and he had like... Everybody was working on the strip with him. Like, oh, okay, yeah, you can go, you can draw some strips, you can draw some strips. So everybody was doing it. So, like, I was one of those kids. I was like, wow, this is something I've always wanted to do. But he was the one that took the step. He's making, no, we're 10 years old. (laughs) (laughs) But he was doing it. And that lasted for a little while. And then I think there was, I got discouraged. And then, you know, you forget about it. And then, so I would go through periods of like a lot of doodling, heavy doodling in my notebooks. And then, oh, no, I'll never be good at this. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until about college. Let's see. Well, when I graduated high school is when the image 
right image comics started and there was this whole independent creator creator owned vibe yeah yeah the whole thing and i was like wow that's awesome yeah these guys are creating their own stuff and that made it seem a little bit more possible, but again, I would doodle a little bit. And, ah, I'll never, I'll never be able to draw like Jim Lee. I'll never be able to draw like Rob Liefeld. Right, was <laughs> everybody thought was awesome at the time. I have plenty of sketchbooks with my take on all of those guys. But then when I got to to college, there was a they had their funny section of their school paper, and it was all student submissions. Right. So uh, it was all terrible. So I looked at that and I thought, well, I can do okay, – I don't have to draw as awesome as Jim Lee to draw a comic strip. I can draw the way I used to draw when I was trying to draw in uh, fourth grade or when I was trying to copy my brother. And I thought, well, at the very least, I can I can do something that's on par with what they're publishing. So after <laughs> after three years of school, I finally <laughs> mustered up the courage to submit something. And then once I saw the stuff in print, I was like, wow, this I want to keep doing this. And that kind of coincided with the realization that I was never going to graduate and college how, with a math major or anything respectable. And then how far into your run on that strip did you learn about the Marvel internship and take that like take that bigger step towards the industry? It might have been right away that I found out. It, it, was, it was right around that time that my brother called me up and he said, Hey, man, you're going to work for Marvel Comics. And I was like, What? Like, yeah, yeah, look, check this out. They got an internship. So that's how I learned about the internship. He so he, read it in a magazine somewhere. So he was just knew what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. And well, because he was, again, he was, I would say he was my first art teacher. People sure. say, like, who's your biggest influence? Say, Mostly him because when you're little, I was a little kid with the older brother hero worship, and I would always try to draw whatever he was drawing. Sure. He, he was a guy that would draw. I would do whatever he was doing, and he liked to draw. So I would, look, I would in turn draw exactly whatever it was he was drawing. Right, right. And I would try to draw exactly the way he was drawing. So my style, by the time I started doing a strip in college, was picking up where I left off the last time I was trying to draw right. things that were designed the way he used to draw them. If, if you can follow I that. I can. I can follow that. So then keeping on to the sort of the roots of your comic professionalism, you were also worked at Fat Cat Comics, which was the comic shop. When was that in this sort of early arc that started my junior year of college when i hit my first uh, road bump in, in the college career where i was like ah, i can't i can't do this i dropped all my classes i withdrew <laughs> and I, was like, I was like i can't do this i'm gonna, i'm not gonna i can't survive like this and then my parents talked me into like no no you know you don't have to go full to go part-time just get the you know the bare minimum you go part-time so i was part-time and then i got the job at the, the comic book store and i got a job working at the gym at school so i had the two jobs and then half the course load of a, of a regular student. So at th- from then on, I was part-time. Got it. That's why I was a, a super-duper senior before I graduated. And why you were a year older than me when I had already so finished my internship. Humiliating. <laughs> so humiliating. I, was, I, had a mu- I had a full mustache in college. My Not goodness. like all the kids without mustaches. <laughs> well, you know, they didn't have to ID me. You were like Matthew McConaughey in uh, that movie that everybody talks about. That was one of my favorite movies. <laughs> yeah. So around about your junior senior years when all this stuff is sort of coming together where you're, you, you get a job at a comic so, store, you're doing well, the strip. Ju- junior year, I got the job. Senior year, I started the comic strip. Following year, I became the editor of the Funnies page at the school paper, and I had finally hit the brick wall of math, and I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. My mom finally said, that's it. Just drop out of school. There's no point. And at this point, I finally decided, like, realized, like, no, I think I can make this work finally. I majored in art. The school had a really weak art program, so it was like a couple life drawing classes. And like people always ask, you know, did you go to school for right for comics? Did you take a lot of art classes? I did not go to school for comics. I took some art classes that were of absolutely no help in learning how to draw comics. It was like, oh, okay, we're gonna do some figure drawing today, and then they'd have the person do, pose, and then you would draw that yeah. to the best of your ability, and get absolutely no <laughs> direction into like help with technique or style, or approach. It was just like, oh, yeah, okay. They would sometimes go through slides and show you the work of the masters. Like, here's some Leonardo da Vinci stuff. Look at the way he draws. <laughs> Look at that. See how he does that? No, well, Yeah, I can see it. So that was that was basically what art classes was for me. There was nothing that was like an assignment that you would do and then be critiqued on or helped or try this or oh, try this tool. You're or, talking to a guy who left art school after a month, so and never took an art class after that. So you're not well, you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's but that's kind of how it should be. I mean, if you want to do this, you're compelled to figure it out. You'll seek out methods, tools. You'll talk to the people that you know. You'll 
Well, huh? back then you didn't have the internet where you could just look up stuff. Like no, but this, there were right? books you could. I mean, I had yeah. plenty of books you read and you just read. It goes to my. Th- this, this running theory I have where a cartooning and stand-up comedy or comedians are, are sort of weirdly distant cousins because it's this job that sort of exists out there. Obviously, people do it, but there's no normal path on how to get to that job, and most people just sort of figure it out. Right. Like you look at it and you see what other people are doing, and, and you start to sort of break the pieces you're, down. You're doing it before you've yes. figured out how to do it. That's what was good about the school paper, doing the comic strip for the school. I was actually drawing cartoons. But I didn't know how to do it for that, that good year or two years that I was doing it. I still didn't know what I was doing. When I interned at Marvel, there was a guy, Mike Higgins, Michael Higgins. He was he was the guy that was like that worked on staff. He was that he had been there, you know, he was there for a long time, but he was the guy that would treat interns like human beings. So in in turn the interns would all talk to him because they're like, Wow, this, this is a guy that works here that's treating me with, with dignity and respect. And would teach you things. And, we, and he would teach. So he yeah. taught me, while I was an intern, he taught me, here's how you letter. Right. Here's how you – I'm going to show you how to letter comics on the board, like old school. And right. so he's like showing – he's got the Ames lettering guy. He's ruling out the lines. He's got the – here's the ink. Here's the pen that you use. I modify my pen this way using sandpaper. Or I clip it first with scissors. You know, you start right, right, with this. right. It was like a 107, Hunt's 107. And he would snip snip the end of it with scissors, and he'd sand it off to make it smooth, and that would give him the aesthetic that he was looking for. And I was like, "Wow, there's no way I would ever have known that." Sure. And then as he's going through it, he 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 was he was showing me and Andy Schmidt. Middle of the way through it, he he looks at us and he says, "Understand that nobody in your life is ever going to pay you to do this, <laughs> because in a few years, no one's going to be doing this on the boards by hand. It's all going to be on computer." And he was right and wrong at the same time because you know it's it's a dead art doing it by hand. Nobody does it. But I ex- I exclusively letter by hand, right. uh, which I think is efficient if you're writing and drawing it all yourself because you know, it, it becomes a part of the artistic process. It's like all right on the page. But but, but even could, even if it didn't lead to me actually becoming a guy that letters his own no, stuff, it's still it was like an it was the first time I used like a real tool with real yeah, ink because yeah. I, I at my you know, the, the cartoon I was doing at, at school was all number two pencil that would felt, smear like crazy. Felt tip pens, uh, ballpoint pens, sure. stuff that never gave you a good looking line. Like you couldn't get the lines to to work. Right. Which is funny because like you like to make fun of people for like what's the right kind of pen to use. Well, I make, make fun of that. But I make fun like, of the question, yeah, because it's a question everybody gets all the time, and there's no you use the tool that yeah, you know how to use. But I can tell you that like, and I will say this: ballpoint pen, wrong. No, no, never use that. But I say <laughs> that knowing that you use it a lot. I do. But uh, but anyway, after after Higgins showed me that, I kind of felt like I started to feel more like a a real artist because I was using real real tools, like, real India ink. Sure. And then I realized like, oh, that paper too. I didn't know Bristol. I was doing everything on like typing paper. Sure. And I was like, oh wow, Bristol board. So that's how you can draw. Because like you know, I would never be happy with what I penciled, and I would erase a lot. And you can do that on Bristol without right destroying the paper. Yeah, but on typing paper, if I if you try to erase something once, you're like right through to the other side. So that was kind of like now this is like the first time I learned something useful to me was through Higgins at an internship. It was not through a class that I actually paid tuition for. Although you couldn't get the internship if you didn't get college credit for sure. it. So so it was that uh, it was those two things: the school paper in conjunction with the internship that really got me uh, firing on all cylinders. So now you're at Marvel Comics. You've had a few strips published in the letters page. And I don't mean this in any disrespectful way because I had a very similar experience when I was there. People would look at my work and say, oh, it's real cartoony. You should work on these adventures books, which is sort of uh-huh. – at the time, they all looked like Batman the Animated Series. Like everybody was doing their version of that's that. What, yeah, that's what they were trying to do. Yeah. And your style clearly is more cartoony even than mine. Right. Was it discouraging? Was there a part of you saying, all right, I guess I'm not going to draw comic books. Are you now like, I know how to do them better now, so now I can go do a strip? Or by the end of your internship, where was your head at? It's kind of funny that you said, because like, this reminds me of another thing that Higgins told me when he looked at the strips I was doing. Because uh, I would show it to, show those to anybody that was willing to look at them. Of course. So Kelly looked at them. Leonardo Manco was in the office one time, and Kelly and Leonardo were looking at this when I wasn't even there. Right. And afterwards, Kelly told me some of the stuff that Leo was saying. And he said actually a couple of – he's like, well, he's doing a couple of things that are, that are like really good that a lot of amateurs, like they don't know this, this. But he's already figured out a couple of things. What were those? Do you remember those? I think it was just like the idea of separating a black in the foreground from a black in the background. You know, because Compositional like, type stuff. 
not compositional, but just like a way of like salt. Like, oh, how do I demonstrate that there's this thing in the like without it all just blending one together? It's okay, solid black sort of a thing. Got know? it. So I would just do like white halos and, around stuff like that. Sure. Which didn't really. I didn't think it really worked at the time, but apparently it was better than what some of Leo's students were doing. Interesting. I remember um, when I just quick as I was. I took a Will Eisner's comics workshop when I was in Florida. I did the first pages. I did the guy in the dark, and he had the white halo around them. And out of the gate, he's like. Don't do this. Right, right. If your drawing isn't strong enough, then redraw it. Yeah, then you got it. So, <laughs> so yeah, at the time, I, I had such a very elementary, simplified style that was like, you know, I, I was just, I was basically still at ground zero with it. And I, I was struggling with, well, how do I make, how do you do it without it looking amateurish, you know? And sure. So it was like, oh, and I'm still trying to solve that to a degree, but. A lot, of the, a lot of those tricks I figured out along the way. But when I showed Higgins my stuff, he said, well, what are you trying to do? And I'm like, well, what do you, what do you mean? What am I trying? What That's you, the right kind of question. Yeah, he's like, what do you mean? What am I trying to do? You know, because I was just showing him comic strips. Yeah. He said, well, you're obviously not trying to draw, trying to get into work doing superhero comics. But in my head, I was like, well, I kind of already did a couple, like I did this hybrid thing where it was the cartoony style. And sure. I kind of felt like, you know, there's precedent for this. That Fred Hembeck had done that, you know. But he just, he kind of, he shrugged that off. And in my head, I was like, well, it was a good question for him to ask. And I wasn't like, it was like one of those cases where you'd think somebody would get defensive about it. Right. But I was like, well, what's the point of getting defensive? Like, what do I need to argue with him for? More my priority was trying to get better at what I was doing and then figuring that at some point I'll wind up in something that fits. So if I never do a superhero comic, fine. Like at the time it was just anything where I get to draw and get better at what I'm drawing was was what right. I was thinking at the time. And I thought my writing was very humor-oriented. Sure. Like I was more interested in being funny because at the time every, everything that everybody was doing was very serious. We were still in that era I think, it's we're, never I think we're still in that era. Well, yeah. Still, yeah, but like at the time, everybody was so preoccupied with comics being more legitimate yes. and taken more seriously. So that everything got really, really hyper-serious. And I was like, well, a lot of that stuff is good, but now there's this void that corresponds to exactly what I think my strength is, which is being goofy and funny. Sure. And so. this is also in the, in the post-Alex Ross Marvels era where realism in, in the artwork almost became a, right. like a key element. Right, right. But I also kind of thought that since I'm kind of doing something, or even with the, the what-if strips that were, were published, I kind of felt like nobody else is doing this, so I don't really have competition. So right. if anybody's just willing to give me a slightest chance, it's not like there's 50 other people better at me. I mean, there are 50 other people more talented and better, but nobody wants to do it, so I'm the guy for the job. It's kind of how I felt. like, And it's purely hypothetical. Yeah. This is all just like me just imagining what might happen. Now, at the time, in uh, the Comic Spires Guide, Fred Hebenbeck had a page, and um, his, his little code name was Buzz or Buzzy. I don't know if you remember. He used to do the calendars in, the, in, I remember. in, in Wizard. Yeah, yeah. Like, there were definitely guys doing playful, humorous, yeah. cartoony stuff. So when you saw that, or even Mad Magazine, like, those are part of you saying... All right. There's a place for yeah. this somewhere. Yeah. If I get if I get good at what I'm doing. Right. Okay. So you had that in, in sort of the back of your head is like yeah. there's there's opportunities I, out there. I might there. have at the time still thought like maybe I could put together a package for a syndicated strip. Okay. You know. Sure. And I actually did take all the stuff I did for school. I sent that to a couple syndicates. Obviously they didn't get picked up. And wait, what? Know, when, when, <laughs> and when I look at them, I mean they they're, they're not they weren't good enough. So sure. Not not that I'm bitter about it or no, no, but there's something to the process of putting stuff together. Okay, actually, I mean, taking, being active, proactive about, of course, like, putting samples forward. together. Yeah, because, yeah, like if you wait until you're ready, you'll if never you wait be, yeah. until like to send something out, like like okay, this is my now I'm at this stuff is finally the good stuff. That's yeah, you, you'll probably never do it. So absolutely, like, like I said, I was making comics before I knew how to make comics. So now you've given me a great segue. You said you're not bitter. One of the few. First I don't know if I want to get to the. Okay. <laughs> That's right. All right. We'll, we'll be good about this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one of the I first. I have a hunch I know where this yeah. is going. One of the, early on, I mean, I knew you were drawing. You were in the bullpen when I met you, and you were doing your own comics. Or they were comics you had done. I can't remember if they were things that you had done, like when you were in college as like a side thing, or if you were doing them while you were at Marvel. They were on boards, though, so it had to have been post internship. Yeah, yeah. And the title of these comics was Tales of the Bitter Bastard. Right. And they were awesome. Like, I think this is one of the first times I was like, this kid is great. And I believe it's also around the same time where I, I coined the, the award the Gia Russo, which is humor in the face of adversity. Right. Because these strips, without getting into it, was basically you. It was autobio stuff. Yeah. But it was really biting, really cutting, super funny, uh-huh. but really mature, like adult. Yeah, I was going through some. Yeah. 
some Which, issues. Which again, we don't have to go into. I'm just <laughs> saying what I what I find interesting and what I, what I sort of wanted to sort of end around is you were doing that, and then you started doing sort of around the same time, but not really. You were doing strips and, and humorous stuff, like you did the Wolverine one pager that went into the Essential book and right. things like that. And then you sort of you know, you found your way into the heroes as kids thing, and that could have gone two ways. It could have gone, you know, the ironic, sharp, biting thing. You know, there were there's certainly precedent for people doing little kid characters who are for adults, mm-hmm. like adult comics with little kid characters. Like, ha ha! This kid is talking like an adult. Yeah, or just being crude or whatever the case may be. Yeah, but yeah, you yeah, you crude, at some point stuff. made a, a decision to go into all ages slash kid friendly slash family friendly, whatever word we're going to use to describe right. it. When you had again. From what I had seen, this very strong voice, and it's not to say that voice isn't in your stuff now, because I think uh-huh. it's there. Like you still do a very similar thing where you're taking yeah. your life experiences, but you're you're turning them into a very palatable, friendly thing. Yeah, you know, say the fuel is still the same kind of a yeah, fuel. yeah, yeah. And so, like it, it, it definitely goes through the same machine, and it comes, but. Was it a conscious decision to go, I'm going to make this stuff for a wider audience? Or was it just by happenstance you started drawing these kids and then the kids begat a friendlier, funnier, but still biting, but not as just like, holy moly, this well, is at the time it harsh. Was, at the time it was, um, this is going to get published. Right. Like, so the bitter bastard yeah. stuff that you were talking about was never intended for publication. That was specifically for as just a mechanism for me to like work through some problems I was going through. But that wouldn't have been something I'd be comfortable showing to my grandmother. Right. And so like, – so, uh, and, and also that's not anything that Marvel would have published. No. At the time. But at the time, there were certainly guys doing indie stuff that was of, of that ilk. Right, right. Well, I also, I also felt like I was getting something out of my system, the, the topic that I was working on. And I was like, once I get this out, I will be – I won't have to keep doing – like – Sure. Where so like you know I don't want to be locked in like I'm the guy that does this stuff and then like well once I've worked out the problems that I had you know after like five ten pages or whatever like I'm not angry anymore I don't need to how do I sustain this level of what it was I was doing like you know like so for me that was just like a short term thing and it was also it was it was a way for me to work out problems in my head while exercising these new tools that I have discovered like ink Bristol paper. And, you know, real nibs, right. lettering on the board. So it was like combining all these things and, you know, hopefully becoming stronger as a result in, in more ways than one. Now, by the time they offered me the, the spot in the bullpen bulletins that you're talking about, yeah. um, I had uh, I'd already done a few strips in What If as an intern. When I came back on staff, Kelly was gone. He wasn't on the What If book anymore, right. but it was Frank. Yeah. And Jason was still the assistant on that book. And so that's when I first remember meeting you. Like, you came in. And I was talking to them, and you came in, and, oh, this is Chris. He was the guy that did those strips, or he did this thing. I did that strip of – I did that drawing of John Galvin with the Ghost Rider thing. Sure, sure. And you were like, oh, that's you? Wow, you're awesome. And so right away, I liked you. I love it. <laughs> it's like, well, no, because like – and then if – because you were an editor, so like, oh, right. like wow, that's awesome. And assistant then, editor. And then when fair. I found out you were the guy that, that was drawing this stuff too, you were assistant yeah, yeah. editor. Yeah. Which carries some weight. But most assistant editors couldn't draw a lick. Right. But you could, and you had already drawn a couple of books at that point, or at least one. Yeah. So then it's like one thing for your mom and all your friends at school to say, like, oh, you're, you're wonderful. Sure. But now here you show up, and you're just like right away. And it seemed genuine to me. So I yeah. was like totally like, wow, well, this guy's won me over. Like, yeah, I, no, they I were love funny. this guy, this guy, Greg. And then every time I ever saw you anywhere talking or doing anything, I, you thought you were hilarious. Oh, I remember one time. It was. I started in March, and by the summer, my brother had come to town, and then we were all in that what if office at some point. And then you came in, and you were like talking about like, oh yeah, there's this new character I got for you guys. I got this new character. He's called like I forgot the name of him, but he was the living Tasmanian devil, uh, tornado, right? Yeah, was what you. And I was like, this is hilarious, (laughs) and like, like Frank and Jason were just kind of looking at you like. Like, you know, like, like they weren't sure how to take it. Like, I don't think they realized, like, I think that they thought that you were serious right. and like, this is going to be, and they were just kind of like, they didn't know how to let you down. Like, oh, this is a guy that doesn't like, oh, we gotta, how do you tell this guy? How do you break it? Like, how did they not, how did I miss it? This is just an obvious joke. Right. right. It's funny. Or maybe they just didn't think it was funny. It's possible. But I thought it was hilarious. And my brother you. was there and he thought it was hilarious. I mean, I used to do stuff, you know, 
it's funny when I eventually left Marvel, I always wondered if the reason I wasn't getting work after I left is, oh, that guy was just joking all the time. Like he wasn't, he didn't really want to do this, which is very possible. Again, right. that's a whole other conversation. But um, yeah, I, I vaguely remember doing a drawing like that where it was just a twirling mass right, with right. eyes. <laughs> so then, then you then you fast forward. Okay, so then so then those guys were like, yeah, we can keep doing the what if strips. So I did a few more, and I did a couple that didn't see print because the the book got canceled. And then once the the bullpen bulletins thing started, I think I think around that time, well, no, okay, to go back to the bullpen bulletins page, I think Zena became the editor of it, and you yeah. right away you said to Zena, "Hey, if you're looking to fill some space, you should have Jerusa draw a comic strip for yeah. it." Yeah, you were like right on top of that. You were total money. Yeah, absolutely. And then I don't know if it was before this or after this, but the books that they had the M two universe at the time, yeah. and they had a next. Sure. So you drew a comic strip just for fun. Yeah. A nuts. I did. Which was like peanuts. Yes. But you substitute the P E A as a letter P and then take that P turn it to an A. It's A nuts, A next. I'm glad you explained that because I don't know if everybody would understand right. if I didn't go through that elaborate explanation. It could have been like Fonzie, like A nuts. Exactly. <laughs> sure. And I don't want everybody to think <laughs> that you drew a comic strip about Fonzie. Right. Wearing a juggernaut's helmet. Right, right. And uh no, it became a flat it became shirt tied around his waist. It almost became what the what the kids today would call a meme because even Brevoort started drawing some goofy. I think he drew like Snoopy in the in the therapist booth. Okay. Brevoort did this. I think yeah, we used right, to so, sort of doodle around. So basically, but you were also doing well. No, you. I know you did your a nut strip before I did bullpen bits, but it was all like it, the spark sort of hit all at the same time. Right, right. And I grew up as a huge Peanuts fan, so right. there was, like when I saw that, it was like it was equal parts like that's awesome, and and like. Envy. I was the kid in fourth grade who started the comic well, no, strip I wasn't before je- you did. I wasn't, I wasn't jealous of him. I was, but I, at the time, because I was like, I was part. I knew I was part of the whole scene there. But with you, it was like, oh man, now I can't use his idea. <laughs> then later, I was like, yeah, of course I can use his idea. <laughs> yeah, it's barely an idea. And plus, you went the um, like you just did this one-off gag. You might have done two of them, but one of them was like just a joke about Ms. Marvel being a drunk. Yeah. And I'm like, that's well, right. that's, you know, that's never going to fly. Yeah, I did do two of them. You can't do that. You can't make that be the thing. And that's like, that's what everybody, like everybody that ever thinks they're going to do a hilarious Iron Man joke, it's like, hey, Iron Man's drunk. Well, again, that's and what I was saying before. Is like right. there's the way you could do a kiddie thing where it's obviously just like crude and you're going for the I've easy. I've so it's, many people. It's the low-hanging like, fruit. Just like, you got to do, yeah, you got to do Iron Man. <laughs> oh, you should be drunk. Yeah. Like we've seen that a, a dozen times like in every wizard – every time wizard did it. Like, but sure. it was funny when they did those mega theater things. But and, it's still low-hanging fruit. And I was like it's, it's low – not only that, but it's been done 800 times. So like if I do it, I'm just copying something. Just another hack. Like, oh, you know, you, well, you could have them drink uh, uh, Kool-Aid. Like, okay. You could have them drink Kool-Aid. So then you convinced Zena to give me a shot with the bullpen bulletins page. So, so the first thing I did was it use – It didn't take much convincing for what it's well, worth. No, because because her, her – yeah, she immediately figured out, well, that's a quarter of the page. I yeah. don't have to fill up with text. So that kind of made – it was just a great – again, this is like a great example of right place at the right time, luckiest break in the world because I was not talented enough to be d- doing – You were. I look at that stuff and I cringe. I'm telling you that – I remember specifically the one strip. I'm like, this guy knows what he's doing. I think I even said it to you because you understood this comic strip was never a thing I could really do, like the gags, and then they build to like a Sunday. Like that's a that's a format. But there was the strip you did of the Silver Surfer, Thanos, and Death. Uh-huh. And it was like a, a series of five strips that were progressively – like they built on each other, but each one worked on its own. Right. It was awesome. And I remember seeing them all lined up on a page and just being like, you know what you're doing. You, know, it like was, you really know what you're doing. I, I remember, yeah, I remember that. It was four strips, by the way. Okay. Not, not, to, not to bother. No, that's it fine. doesn't matter. But I was like, really, you were the first one to look at them, and that was the first thing you said. And right. I was like, I'm glad that you saw that. Because yeah. after you, two other people looked at it and said, well, you know, you should, you should, you should have a – you need a to be continued at the end of these strips. And I was like, no, you don't need it to that's, be continued. Yeah, that's not how comic strips work. You don't need – like, yeah. I don't need that because it works all by it. And, yeah. like, if you, if you hadn't done that, I would have been, feel, like, just devastated and had so much – Right place, right time. <laughs> exactly. Like, I would It would have, like, destroyed my confidence. Right. But because you said exactly what, like, I was trying – like, you called it out. It's my, super, it's my like, editorial okay. superpower. I felt like, okay, I, I am doing what I'm doing. Because contrary to popular opinion, not everybody – in that office knows what they're talking about. <laughs> I remember specifically showing, not not to keep talking about myself, but 
I remember doing samples of the original X-Men, and I showed them around, and one of the editors, I won't name names because I'll be, I'll be <laughs> nice, was looking at my drawings, and he's like, you know, you've got to draw Cyclops. You've got to draw more heroic, more muscular. <laughs> and, and, and I was just like, like this is ridiculous. Like, you know, he's Slim Summers. Like, I know, like, I'm drawing the character as a teenager. Right. So I completely understand. There's this, uh, you know. And the, but, well, that's also, like, like, let's not ignore the fact that, like, it doesn't mean you can't do that. It just means you didn't do that in this instance. Yeah. It's not like, like, oh, we can't hire this guy because he can't draw a guy slightly more muscular. Well, he, you know, again, for what it's worth, he's sort of maybe trying to say, look, if you want people to hire you, you're going to have to draw muscular soup because that the, that's the thing people like to see. Right. I have just approached things differently. I draw a slighter character sometimes, and yeah, but it you, all depends. I mean, I've seen what you draw, and there's usually a represented – very big, strong, muscular guy. In there most can of what be. You draw. If the character, if the Hulk is there, yes, he is going to be. If I, but if I'm drawing, yeah. Anyway, well, you, enough you know, about me. If you were to draw Captain America or Thor, you yeah. draw them appropriately. But um, so bullpen, bullpen bits. We're not necessarily going in any chronology. I'm just. I, I kind of feel like I like I always get off track, and I'm like, oh wait. No, I, we what what got this going was you point. sort of growing. Well, I just into, well, I, I, I want to say this because like I never get a chance to point this out though that like the 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 whole like I always wanted to do peanuts. Right or a version of that, and then when they, once the bullpen bits got going, at the time I was doing still doing the unused what if stuff, so I was drawing everybody as adults, and then I thought, well, let me if I just steal Greg's gag for one thing, like, you know, if I do them as kids, like that in itself will have like a, a degree of humor, and it creates a whole different environment with which to play off of humor, like if the you know, just things that kids do or or don't or whatever. So I thought, all right, I'll do, I'll, I'll do, I'll do one of these what ifs. Like, what if they were kids? I'll do like one strip. Right. And then I realized I could keep doing that over and over again. And then you never said, "Hey, you're copying me." You're, yeah. And uh, it just it went from there. And then, I wasn't going to do it. And then, and then, and then to get back on on point with like what all ages appropriate or whatever, I kind of right. felt like, well, now that I'm doing little kids and I'm doing a peanuts kind of a thing, I should, I should keep it that level of appropriateness. And I also don't want to do something that they're not they're going to say we can't print this because. At that time, it was like I was just living week to week. Like, oh, maybe she'll say yes to this one because Zena didn't like all the stuff I was right. I was giving her. I kind of feel like I write from the same place of anger, but I wouldn't do anything like people doing inappropriate adult sure. sort of things and no cursing. Again, to a certain degree, that autobiographical thing has certainly continued. I mean, you look at G Man, right? And there's right. no question that that's coming from from you. That's yeah. that's your life. That's everything, your everything comes from. Like people say, where do you get your ideas? And you usually, you know, there's usually no answer to that. But right. I mean, every once in a while, I think like actually, I think it always comes from something, from being angry, <laughs> things that have gotten me like really upset. Like I, I just dwell on these things, and sure. the only way to really, the only healthy way to 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 unleash that is if I turn it into something positive, like a comic. We've had a conversation before. There was a period where there was an edit- editor who wanted you to write and not draw, and you were very frustrated because you couldn't come up with stories. And I was just like, "Just make it up. Just make it up, right? right. Because it's all make believe." And you know, clearly, you ha- you come from a place where yeah, I get stuck. You build off of a thing. Yeah, I feel like I need something significant to work off of, and so I get stuck with the writing and the brainstorming a lot of the time until I hit upon the thing. Like, oh, that's the spark. And and usually it's something like really minor and insignificant that most people would. That's not an idea for a story, but it doesn't. It's whatever it is that works. It's for, enough to for get me the, the time. Yeah, right. And I certainly have had my cases where I'll do. I'll come up with. But set that's why pieces. I wanted to write with you when it, we had that opportunity, or when I was given, you know, sure. told like, "Hey, you should write this series." I was like, "Well, let me work with this guy. He's got a million ideas." Well, yeah, but I don't have any stories. They're just like scenes yeah, or, or moments. I, I yeah. felt like I felt like that would have worked. Of course, it would have worked. It would have been the two pieces sort of coming together right. and creating a thing. I would have said, we should have a scene where this happens. And then you would say, sort of like when, when I was writing X-Babies, you were the guy who would call me out when the nuggets didn't fit. Well, there was like only one or one thing I could really – There were a few things. Two. There were a few – yeah. There were enough instances where – Two is less than a few. A few is three. There were probably – there's probably another one in there somewhere. <laughs> but there were enough where – it was helpful to have somebody who was looking at the sort of heart of the thing because I'd get caught up in set pieces and like this will be cool when Jacob draws this. Right. Yeah, I, I did kick up a f- like when when I really there was I had no right to. I was like I was like, hey man, this is wrong and you really got to fix this or you're in trouble. The right you had was that we are professionals and we are friends and that's you, it's less you had a right you almost had a responsibility <laughs> to make sure we didn't screw it up. This was like you know on some levels. That was my book. That was it. 
we've talked about peanuts as sort of an influencing factor. Something else that you don't often touch upon in other conversations, you mention it every now and again, is Eric Larson. Right. Clearly an influence on you that people can't see necessarily in your work, but I know you. Was that all from Savage Dragon? Like, yeah. is that where it started, or did yeah. you read his Spider-Man stuff before and sort of follow I, him? I didn't all? know. I didn't know anything about his Spider-Man stuff or anything that he did before Image. When Image started, I just became aware that Savage Dragon was one of those books that the Image was going to make. And Were you aware of any of those guys before Image started? I knew Rob Liefeld, and because he was the one that they, they centered everything around it to begin with. Like right. all the early promotional images were his young blood stuff. And his book launched first. And but I, I, I was, cause I wasn't reading Spider-Man at that time. Okay. Whatever. Like I had, I was so broke. It was like, sure. I can't buy every comic. And so I missed all the Eric Larson and Todd McFarlane stuff that they were doing on Spider-Man, but I was reading X-Men. So I knew who Jim Lee and Wills Portacio were. And Mark Silvestri. And, and Mark Silvestri. So I was like, Oh, the, well, this stuff looks awesome. Sure. Like, so I was like, so I was like really excited for a young blood. I was excited about Wildcats. But then, you know, all this book, I, I figured, well, there's like seven books. So I'm going to buy all of them, you know, number one. You buy the number one. So I bought, bought the first Spawn, and I was like, wow, this is cool. I didn't know anything about this guy. And then it turned out, you know, Todd McFarlane turned out to be the, the vocal, the most vocal out of all of them. So sure. he would, I would read in, like, the comic shop news. And, again, there was no internet. It just seems so <laughs> weird to think that they like – so I was reading, like, every interview I could read about this guy. Like, he's so compelling. He's the rebel. He's leading this charge. He was kind of like – that at the time, he was the modern Stan Lee because Stan Lee had the way of making everybody loyal to Marvel – and he was the name, and he, he was a rebel at the time. Todd took it. Todd took it like over the top, and, and it's it's easy to see the reason why he was so vocal and and such a rebel about everything, because that all helped their cause to like sell the. It helped make everything the success that it was, because it got a lot of people like me on board with this whole rebel thing. Like, oh, I'm part of this. I'm part of the. He's the talking to me. Yeah, he's yeah. talking to me. I'm, these books are for me. And, and the people that hated him, at the same time, everybody's paying attention. Everybody's going to buy these books to see how good they are. But the Savage Dragon was like a book, like, wow, this thing is awesome. Who's this guy? I didn't even know who he was. That's amazing. This is great. I love this book. <laughs> and then I, I think I got to college, and it was like, well, I'm kind of, I didn't know where the comic shop was, so I was cut off for like a year or so. And then once I found the comic shops again, it was that glut when everything was on sale because they had millions of copies of all these books that nobody was buying. So I bought everything I could get my hands on in the quarter bins. And once I went through and I reread everything, I was like, this set, like, Spawn is the greatest. And I was sure that I loved Spawn. And then month after month, I realized I was reading Savage Dragon first. Like, that was always the, the thing I was most excited to, to read. And in retrospect, it's because, like, his book was unlike any other book. Like, Todd and Jim Lee and everybody else that was doing comics were doing comics that in tone were identical to Marvel in every way. They weren't unique. They were new superheroes. But the stories and the content and the vibe, the style, everything was the same. But Eric was the only guy whose voice seemed odd and off, right. off kilter and like different. Like I'm getting something new. Yeah. And then, you know, when I got through college, you know, there was the periods of time when like I'm going to drop out or uh, life sucks because of this girl or that girl right. that did right. wrong to me or whatever. And like, you know, it was like you, you did some really dark times. And when you're a teenager, like th that's the worst time of your life as a teenager. You don't know what you're going to do and you think everybody hates you, you know. So Savage Dragon at that time was like that was what kept me going. When nothing, when there was like nothing else for me, I was like, well, I still, at least I could still read this. That was the, that was the only escape at the, for wow. a very dark period of my college life. So I knew this guy was, was, he was awesome. And artistically, there was also a lot of energy to his work that seemed missing from the other quote-unquote hot artists because he was, an, you know, again, at the time I didn't understand what set him apart, but now it's clear that it is, uh, he was a natural storyteller. and He would tell stories with his art as opposed to really awesome, cool splash page poses that looked really cool, but they didn't actually, they didn't pictorially tell a story the way that, that Larson was capable of doing. So he was, you know, people look at his art and they might, you know, it's, you can criticize it for not being uh, anatomically correct. You know, that's, that's right. a big thing that people like to glom onto. Like, there's nothing more important than something that looks realistic. But for me, it's like from panel to panel, I am watching him tell a story, and the words are just enhancing it. You know, right. it's not like I need these captions to understand what's going on because all I see is one drawing of Spawn in a dark alley, and I'm lucky to get, like, see half of them. Right, right. Um, I felt like... Spawn comics get, became less and less visually clear, and and to me that was frustrating. And sure, so and like it's weird because like you can reckon you'll recognize this, 
like most people, like when I would tell them like over the years, like what's your favorite comic? And I would say Savage Dragon. And half the time people thought I was lying, right. like, like goofing on it. Like, oh, that can't be, that can't be your real. Yeah, yeah. That can't really be your favorite. I'm like, really? That's your, but he sucks. So I'd, I'd run into that all the time. And I was like, why do you, like, are you not looking at the same thing? You don't even, you know, and then I would, I would often say like, well, have you ever read this book? Yeah, I read an issue of that. Well, I don't think that's fair. If you you read one issue, right. you can pick apart anybody's single issue of anything. I, I was, I think I've done even that. If it's, even if it's the best issue, even if it's the issue, I would say this is the best issue. If you if you're already predisposed to not like something, you're gonna you're gonna. Cut no, it I mean, apart. I'm pretty sure that I know I read Savage Dragon one, and it didn't do anything for me, and I thought it was sort of messy and hard to follow. And over the years, you've constantly you've, you've been well, very consistent. You know, it's, it's it's funny that you say that because Eric didn't even like that issue as it stands, but. Because he, he um he had he used a lot of like flashback sequences. I just remember it feeling, and it's so long ago. I haven't uh-huh. reread it yeah, in yeah, ages. Yeah. But I just remember reading it no, going. But you're right. I think you're right. Just reading it, thing like, uh, what? Like what is? Huh? There, there was a lot of back and forthing, and then when he he recollected that initial miniseries into a trade paperback. You told me you put it in different order. He, yeah, he rearranged all the pages so there was no flashbacks, and so it was just all sequential. And then at some point I realized, oh, he did that because you can't have the Savage Dragon not a superhero in the first issue of the Savage oh, Dragon. So you need, so he starts it off with this action sequence of like the Savage Dragon being the Savage being Dragon, being the Savage Dragon, being the being the cop superhero. But he didn't, you know, he didn't become a cop sequentially for like, you know, I don't know, twenty, forty pages or so. Right. Because he was trying to figure stuff out. I mean, for what it's worth, you were not the only person who sang the praises of Savage Dragon. I certainly know Kurt Busiek was a huge fan and sort of speaking, singing its praises. Yeah. So you were not alone. I just, I know that over the years, there is this sort of reaction to when you say that. Right. So I wanted to just give you the opportunity well, to sort I, of talk remember, about it. I remember, it. I remember like, also compared to every other book you were reading, like X-Men stuff or and anything, those books seemed to just, that was the beginning of decompressed storytelling was, was the early 90s and the mid 90s. You know, people talk about Bendis being the one that created this decompressed storytelling, but it was happening back then because I would read anything like, you know, all the X-Men stuff by Claremont or uh, Lob Dell was writing all this stuff. And it was always like, I don't, I am completely unsatisfied. Like, I, when are they going to tell me what Gambit's secret is? There was that secret that they right. kept, they kept, they would tease you with it issue after issue, but it was years before they would tell you. Well, I think that was less decompression and more just so, so much soap operatics. There were so many characters right. and so much happening that nothing resolved. It just kept building. It, it felt like nothing happened. And then I'd go read an issue of Savage Dragon, and my, and my buddy would tell me too. He's like, he's like, man, that if that issue, if, if what happened in that book was in X Men, it would have taken two years. So it's like you get, t- you know, Dragon. The Dragon books would be like they tease you with something and be like, oh man, I wonder what's going to happen with that. And then like, you actually get to find out in the right. same book. <laughs> like he sets things up and in the beginning of the issue. And you get some payoffs by the end of the issue. It's like what it's you know what comics are supposed to be. And again, he Larson is, is old school that way, thinking that like you should get a complete read in a, in a sure. single issue. He was also the king of making them. Uh, they were still a serial. Like you still wanted, you had to go, come right. tune in next time. To he see was what making happens. monthly comics, but it wasn't like you need to tune in next time to be the slightest bit satisfied because right. he, he gave you he gave you so much to be satisfied with that issue you just read. No, I can I can certainly acknowledge that in the past year you've lent me a few of the trades and stuff happens. I mean yeah. they, those trades, the status quo at the beginning is completely different than by the end of that 140 pages, whatever it is. Uh-huh. Like, and and I guess that's also going back to sort of what was so exciting about the image stuff. And in a way, Larson is the one guy who's paid it off. Create our own. You could do whatever you well, want. Yeah, they were all saying you know, we're <laughs> going to do our own books, our own way. But even and beyond that, those guys stopped. He's the one still doing. But it. even beyond that, like he is taking his characters and completely just he's changing them. Well, yeah, even in, the, in those early days, like he would introduce characters, and they'd be dead by the end of the issue, right. and that would be like you know just purely from like you know a quick soundbite sort of a thing. That's what people would say. Like oh, I, I can't believe he just like he, that guy died. Like anybody, anything could happen. Nobody's yeah. safe in this book. There's a certain power and, to uh, that. Not even dragon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. uh <laughs> Going back to the to the criticism of his anatomy not always necessarily being sure I was like one of those hundred percent perfect yeah and you and you still are but yeah. that's the same thing people would criticize and still do criticize Jack Kirby sure. for is that there's some you know some of his anatomy can get wonky but you can criticize what, it and appreciate it but at what the same comes time. with yeah what comes with that is all the energy yeah. the dynamic like every page exploding in your face like and and even the stuff that's off kilter that you can point to and say like oh he 
you kind of drop the ball with this. I still find those things interesting to look at. I think Larson on his worst day is more interesting for me to look at now than Jim Lee on his best day. And I could completely agree with that. Looking at Larson stuff is you to say nothing else, it is interesting and you can get something just looking at it. Uh-huh. There's there's definitely and he also he also straddles that line. I think what, what offends a lot of people about it is that he's he's like in the middle of cartoony and and uh, superheroic, su- superheroic or uh, and anatomically correct. He's he's he straddles that line that people think like he's trying to be and he's trying to draw like Jim Lee right. and failing. So they think that if, when you step back and you realize no, he's drawing cartoons, it starts to become a little bit. You start sure. to realize oh okay, and like he's a lot of time he'll like experiment with his styles a lot where like some characters will look like they're right out of like a sunday funnies page they're stylistically they don't even match other people on the page that he's drawing and to me that's interesting but to other people they say oh that doesn't fit because they're not they don't look real enough right you know and i always lean towards the more cartoony the more signature style the more that you get an artist actual personality coming through sure to me that's more interesting than something that looks like i love i love all alex ross's stuff but that's also kind of it's 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 like a step away from like just look out your window and look at people walking down the street. Now, I remember talking to to Brevoort about I used to love drawing uh, just dot eyes like uh-huh. where you don't see the eye the eyeball or you just it's just a, a black dot with right. an eyebrow like uh, the GI Joe with the where they would color in the whole face. More like um, what Paul Smith was doing, Leave It to Chance. Okay, where she just had like the dots for right, eyes. Right, right. And uh, Brevoort had a thing where he's just like you know it just looks. It looks like a vacant sort of like you can't see the expression. It's not reading, like a like a human face kind of a thing, uh, which was interesting. Just because I thought it looked awesome, like it, it was the sort of thing where I could get expressions out of that. Yeah, that's that's where you kind of like whoever's in the boss position is the one that decides Gets to make like, the call. Yeah, because because Brevoort's a guy whose opinion I respect every opinion that sure. he has, but you might not always agree. So like what 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 he says is like not expressive expressive enough. It's like it just makes me think people saying like, oh wow, it's amazing what Charles Schultz can do with two sure. dots in a line, and get so much expression out of that. And I mean, a part of it is is Brevoort, and again, I, I worked with him for a couple of years, so I, I knew where he was sort of coming from. Is he was trying to make comic books for the comic book audience, and he sort of right. understood yeah what they were gonna want. Holy moly, can you believe that cliffhanger? Incredible. Uh, or not. Maybe that wasn't much of a cliffhanger. Maybe it just ended at a logical point of conversation. That's entirely possible. It's entirely possible that that was done on purpose. Listen, if you liked what you've heard so far, there's more in the next show. More with Chris G. Russo. And if you really liked what you heard, please go to stuffsaidshow.com. It's all one word, stuffsaidshow.com, where there'll be links to my guests' websites, like Chris G. Russo's, which is awesome, information on how to subscribe to the show, all kinds of stuff. As it has show notes, there'll be some show notes up there as it's relevant to each episode. So check that out, and... That's about it for me for now, but come back for the next episode for more Stuff Said.